I tried to pick out some rather ominous music for this podcast for you guys, and I guess I succeeded in that adventure. So anyway, this is Explore Yellowstone Like a Local, uh, the number one podcast for Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks and home to the top-rated guidebook of the same name. And I am your author, as well as your host for this and all the other podcasts, Teddy Garland. And uh, this is kind of just an interesting podcast about a certain section of Yellowstone Park that very few people know about called the Zone of Death. Hence the ominous music you guys are listening to in the background right now. So I had read about the Zone of Death six or eight years ago after an attorney friend of mine in Jackson Hole gave me a copy of a legal document or a legal paper by a Brian C. Colt called The Perfect Crime. And in this paper, Brian Colt basically spells out how you can commit basically any crime you want in a certain area of Yellowstone Park and get away with it scot-free. And there's a number of reasons behind all this. And uh, this is no just, you know, fly-by-night paper that somebody threw out there. This is a legal document published by the Georgetown Law Journal, which had uh, studied it for over a year before they published it. So this is a big deal. This is not just some paper some kookaroo wrote about this. And I'm going to get into uh, Brian Colt's background and education, and you guys are going to see real quickly that uh, Brian is the real deal with the credentials to back it up. And just FYI, you guys, we shot a short video of the interview I did with Brian that glosses over everything in this podcast. So if you go to YouTube and put in the zone of death, you'll see a picture of him. He's kind of the bald-headed guy sitting there. Sorry, Brian. (laughs) And uh, just click on that, and you can kind of hear him and see him talk about what we're going to discuss here in this podcast. As I have mentioned in other podcasts here and there, I have spoken to a gentleman named John Leonard a number of times because John is really good friends with one of my really good friends. And John Leonard happens to be no less than the head ranger or the police force, if you will, over every national park in the United States. So John is a big, big deal. The big dog of the big dogs, as they say, is is John Leonard. He's a great guy. I've spoken to him numerous times. And in our conversations, he has conveyed to me that there are some serious crimes being committed in national parks, and that is basically what he deals with. Yellowstone's kind of unique because you get people walking right up next to a bison, and they think they can go over there and damn near pet it, but... In other national parks, there's some really serious crimes that John deals with. Kidnappings, rapes, and even murder. And you don't have to look very far to to find these out. I mean, just think back. This is less than a year ago where that idiot Brian Laundrie killed that poor Gabby Petito on the uh, eastern edge of Grand Teton National Park about 25 miles from where we are going to discuss this zone of death which is on the north side of Grand Teton National Park and on the west side of Yellowstone. You had to look a little bit further, and you've got that Kukaruk, Lori Vallow Daybell, or whatever her name is, and Chad Daybell. Uh, they're, they're, her last trip with her kids when they were alive was to Yellowstone Park, and they were killed shortly thereafter. So it begs me to wonder, I mean, had either one of these people known about the legalities of this zone of death and the lack of prosecution or the theory of the lack of prosecution that could take place in this area when you do commit a crime, who knows? There, you know, There's a lot of to-dos and a lot of ifs and whats about it all, and we're going to get into that a little bit. But as long as these loopholes that we're getting ready to discuss exist, and they exist today, as I'm speaking to you guys today, these loopholes in our Constitution and in the laws of Yellowstone Park and Wyoming and Idaho and Montana, it still just amazes me to today that a crime that is thought of, transpires, and is committed in this zone of death 
is unprosecutable. Let's get into all that next. And the first thing we're going to get into is Brian Colt, the guy that wrote this paper. And we're going to get into his, his background and his education first. So you guys will know that we're dealing with somebody that is very, very serious about all this stuff. And so let's get into Brian Colt's background before we continue on with this uh, podcast. All right, Brian is a professor of law at Michigan State University and a Harold Norris faculty scholar and has a law degree from no less than Yale University. And he has appeared numerous times on national television and has written for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, as well as the Atlantic, among many other publications. His law review article on the impeachment of ex-presidents was recently cited by both sides of the lawyers during the the second impeachment of President Trump. In addition to teaching at, at Michigan State University, he has been a visiting professor at the University of Alabama and the University of Ottawa and a visiting lecturer at Vitatis Magnus University in Lithuania. Also, Brian is admitted to the State Bar of Michigan and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia and the Sixth Circuit. So, telling you guys, this guy knows what he is talking about and what he is doing. And at the end of this podcast, just so you guys don't have to look it up, I'm actually going to do a reading of The Perfect Crime. It's not very long. It's actually very short, as Brian mentioned to me, in regards to legal papers. So when he submitted this to the Georgetown Law Journal, which is the publishing agent for legal study papers such as this, he thought they didn't know if they were even going to publish it. But they called him back within two weeks about publishing this, and he said, no, I want to study this up a little more and make sure everything is spot on, and did so for a full year, and then finally let them publish it. If this thing was bogus and all this was a bunch of BS, they would never publish it. The Georgetown Law is not going to publish a legal paper if it does not fit in the confines and meet the jurisprudence of our laws of our country. If it's, if it's going to fail, it's it's going to fail and they're not going to publish it. But if it meets the criteria of a legally binding paper, then they publish it. So, hence you have The Perfect Crime by Brian C. Colt. So, now that you guys understand that Brian is the real deal, let's discuss what is the zone of death and how all this came about. And I'm, I actually interviewed Brian on a Zoom call a few days ago, and I'm going to actually let him speak to you guys in this podcast. So let's get started with the actual meat and potatoes of where is the zone of death and how did this all occur? And Brian's going to help me explain that to you guys here as we go along. Okay, the area we are talking about is at the southwest corner of Yellowstone Park. And anybody that's listened to me in the past knows I've spoken about this numerous times, as it is called the Beckler Corner of Yellowstone Park. It's also known as Cascade Corner because 80% of the park's waterfalls are down there. And it's where Union Falls is, the cover shot for the guidebook, and uh, Dunanda Falls, where the water comes straight down. There's a great picture of me in the guidebook and all that, and that's where all the hot pots are. And yeah, the Beckler area of Yellowstone Park's wonderful, but it's just a hiking area only. And so that is where this is. It's down in the corner of Beckler. It's kind of very elongated, and it kind of grows down through there, and it stops up where Montana starts. So, where all this began was the boundaries of Yellowstone Park were laid out in 1872, and Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana didn't exist. So, somehow, some way, when they laid out the lines of the states, the western portion of Yellowstone Park fell into Idaho very narrow strip, and then as you go on up, 
the rest of the strip on the west side falls into Montana and kind of bebops around the northwest corner up there in Montana. But in this little 50-mile elongated rectangle down there in Idaho is what we're talking about. It's the zone of death. And so, and Yellowstone Park has a, has a hiking trail right through the middle of it called the Robinson Creek Trail. And basically, when you start at the Beckler Ranger Station, within about five minutes of walking, you kind of head northwest on the Robinson Creek Trail, and you're in the zone of death. And you can stay in it for about five miles, and there's a couple campsites in there. There's two campsites you can reserve through Yellowstone Park set up right in the middle of the zone of death. And so, yeah, so that's where it is. That's that's the area of it. Of it. And that's why it, this whole legal thing gets started is because the boundaries of Yellowstone Park exceeded those of Wyoming. So let me kind of explain that to you guys. And I wish I had John Leonard on here explain this to me. I probably should have called him and asked him if he'd do this. But, but anyway, so every national park, every national park in the United States is jurisdictionally covered by the state it sits in. So if you commit a crime in, let's say, the Grand Canyon, you're going to get prosecuted in the state of Arizona. If you commit a crime in Yosemite, you're going to get processed in the state of California. However, Yellowstone Park sits in three states. But, jurisdictionally speaking, the entire park falls under the jurisdiction of Wyoming. So if you commit a crime in Yellowstone Park, they're going to haul your ass down there to Cheyenne, down at the very bottom of it. However, if you're a savvy criminal or you got a really good attorney, you're going to go, well, no, my crime was committed in Idaho. So they have to haul you back to Idaho because of Section 3. Point two of our Constitution that says you must have your trial in the state your crime was committed. So they ship you back to Idaho. And then the next Tatey Tate falls into place with the Sixth Amendment, which is known as the Vicinage Clause, which states that you must have a jury from the state and district your crime was committed and nobody lives there. So let's hear from Brian about all this and let him kind of explain it to you firsthand. Sure. So the first part of it is that Yellowstone has exclusive federal jurisdiction. There's a lot of federal land out there, and most of the time the state can prosecute crimes there and the feds, but Yellowstone is one of a handful where the state has no jurisdiction at all. So if you commit a crime in Yellowstone, the feds can prosecute you, and only the feds. Okay, so that's part one. So if you committed a crime in the Idaho portion of Yellowstone, you would be committing a crime in the state of Idaho, but the district of Wyoming. And when they say the jury has to be from the state and district, it's not state or district, it's state and district. They have to all be from Idaho, and they have to all be from the District of Wyoming. So they would have to be from that portion of the park that's in Idaho, about 50 square miles. But nobody lives there. Um, So uh, the theory goes, because they wouldn't be able to give you um, a trial that complies with your Sixth Amendment right to a jury from the state and district, they would have to let you go. So, yes, kids, you heard that right. I told you guys this is going to be a good podcast. Yeah, you can basically take that spouse of yours that's been nagging in your ear and yanking on you for about eight years or that business partner that uh, stole all your money and uh, go reserve uh, that campsite, 9A7 or 9A whatever, 9K7 in Yellowstone Park, and theoretically get away with murder. You have to plan. Now, there's some caveats. You have to plan and execute the entire thing and be able to prove that. Nothing was planned outside of this area. 
in that one little area. You, like, you can't go buy a gun at Walmart or whatever and bring it in there knowing you're going to use it in that murder. It all has to be planned and executed in the zone of death before, you know, you're, you're going to get prosecuted for conspiracy to commit whatever crime you wanted to commit because you planned it because you went and bought a gun at Walmart in Rexburg. It all has to take place inside the zone of death. So there's some caveats to it, but it's still kind of fun to talk about. But yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, and there's a lot of skeptics out there. You guys, there's, you know, there's a number of videos on YouTube you guys can look up. There's one that, that's put out by 48 Hours. It looks like they're talking to a ranger, but I don't think he is, but he's kind of setting himself up to look like a ranger. That He just throws this entire thing under the bus. They're trying to just sweep it under the rug. Because I'm telling you guys, this loophole is open right now. It is open right now, and somebody is going to jump through that loophole one day. And so, you know, but they're just calling it an urban legend or, you know, a religious cult. And uh, so I asked Brian about that as well. So let, let's hear what Brian has to say about the skeptics to, to his paper, The Perfect Crime. And um, there's, a, there's two kinds of responses that I get um, that are skeptical. One of them is people will say, well, the state would just prosecute. Well, but they wouldn't. Or uh, they would just do a change of venue. Well, you can't do a change of venue unless the defendant requests it in the federal system. Um, or they, uh, they, they they come up with all these things that the Georgetown Law Journal wouldn't have published this if, if it was that simple, right? Uh, and um, the, the other skeptical group uh, just say, well, they wouldn't just let you go. Um, and... I think that's right. Um, I, I think they're right to be skeptical that, that the court would just let you go. Uh, but that's not a legal argument. You, you, you need something to get around the fact that the Sixth Amendment says you can't do a trial like that. And um, the, the, the Constitution is clear. Usually it's vague, right? But here it's very clear and it's very easy to comply with. And all they have to do is draw the lines right and and congress colored outside lines here they could fix that so you guys can see what a what a problem this really is i mean this is really a problem this is not make believe this is a real problem with real serious connotations to it and see why the Park Service wants to sweep this under the rug and and wants this all just to go away and, and nobody hear about it. But eventually, somebody, some kookaroo out there, and all you got to do is watch the news. You know, there's enough people out there just to keep life interesting, I promise you, or there wouldn't be anything to report about on the news. But you just see it every day. You know, and it's like we said at the start of this podcast, what if that kookaroo, Brian Laundrie, knew about this and killed Gabby Petito in that area? Or what if Lori Vallow, Daybell, whatever her fruitcake name is, you know, killed those kids in that area? It's not hard to get to. God, you can drive a car within four minutes of it and get up there to the Beckler Ranger Station and take off walking. You don't have to have a permit to walk on a trail. You just take off walking, get into that. There's going to be a little sign that says entering Idaho on the trail, and then you're there. You're in, in this area. You're in the zone of death that described in Brian Colt's paper, A Perfect Crime. And so, yeah, something is going to happen. Something is going to occur in this area, and somebody's going to push the envelope and actually do something. And as I interviewed Brian, he actually discussed with me a person that did get caught for poaching in this area, hunting illegally in the park, and... His attorney, he didn't know about this paper, but his attorney did. And they went around and tried to get all this resolved without being prosecuted using Brian Colt's paper. And what you're going to have to do, though, is you're going to have to keep moving up the court system. You're going to have to get to the Court of Appeals in Wyoming, and eventually you're probably going to have to take it to the Supreme Court. And that might finally get somebody to take action on getting this thing closed. Because eventually, it's a big, it becomes a question of law. 
And your rights as a citizen of the United States are spelled out perfectly clear, just like Brian said, in the Constitution. And by law, your jury trial must be held in the state you committed your crime. And they can't seat a jury in this area? No, 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 no. We just went over all that. So it's going to happen. But this guy, this one kid that got caught poaching in there, Right before it went to the Court of Appeals, they offered him a really good plea deal. So he just took the plea deal and got out of it all. You know, they didn't want to do it. They didn't want this to keep going because everybody knows it's a problem. Everybody in the Cheyenne District of the law of Yellowstone Parks knows this is a serious problem and something someday is going to happen. So I asked Brian, I said, well, what's got to happen? man? What do we got to do to get this thing closed? And it's so simple. It's so easy. So let, let's hear from Brian again. All Congress has to do is redraw the district lines. They don't have to change the Constitution here. They just have to say the district of Wyoming is Wyoming, just like uh, most of the district, most of the states in the country. It's just, you know, South Carolina. The district of South Carolina is South Carolina. So just say that. Say the district of Idaho is Idaho. Say the district of Montana is Montana. They could do that in five seconds if they wanted, um, but they don't. Okay, so that's really the end of this podcast. Um, I'm actually going to read the entire paper to you guys. And it's about a 20-minute read. I'm going to forewarn everybody out there. It's about a 20-minute read. But if you're driving up there from California or Denver or who knows where and you want to kind of listen to all this, it's kind of interesting. There's some interesting parts to it. There's kind of some boring parts, legal parts to it. And so that there's some, he's kind of actually got some funny parts in there too. So it's kind of a good read and uh, saves you guys from having to look it up and read it to your car. You can just sit there and listen to me, read it to you guys as you're driving down the road. So I'm actually going to read the full document. And just if you guys look it up, you can kind of see there are 69 footnotes at the bottom of this page. It's about 12 pages long, but half of every page is documentation of where he documents everything he's talking about. So here we go. For your listening pleasure, here is The Perfect Crime by Brian C. Colt. You may have daydreamed about it, some forgotten constitutional provision combined with an obscure statute that together make it possible for people in the know to commit crimes with impunity. Whether you were looking for opportunities to commit crimes or afraid that somebody else was, the possibility of a constitutional perfect crime was too compelling to ignore. This essay represents the fruit of my own daydreams combined with the fact that lately I have spent my lucid moments mulling over one particular forgotten constitutional provision, the Sixth Amendment's vicinage requirement. The courts may or may not agree that my loophole exists, and in any case, this essay is not intended to inspire anyone to go out and commit crimes. Crime is bad, after all, but so is violating the Constitution. If the loophole described in this essay does exist, it should be closed, not ignored. One, a constitutional rusty nail, venue, or the place a trial is held, and vicinage, the place from which jurors are drawn, are at the root of our problem. They have let people get away with murder before. In England, before 1548, it often happened that a murderer would strike his victim in one county and, by craft and coddle, avoid punishment by making sure that the victim died in the next county. An English jury could only take cognizance of the facts that occurred in its own county, so no jury would be able to find that the killer had committed all of the elements of murder. Given a choice between maintaining common law formalities and preventing murder with impunity, England sensibly chose the latter. A 1548 law gave juries the power to pursue cross-country homicides. In the centuries that followed, the British made exceptions to the rule that a case must be tried by a jury from the county in which the crime was committed. 
In the rebellious American colonies, the principle of local jury trial persisted more strongly. In part, this was because of a law that brought British soldiers who killed colonists back to England for trial, and other laws that removed colonists' trials to England or Nova Scotia at least. Having fought a revolution to win, among other things, the right to try local crimes before local juries, it was important to the framers to make this principle indelible. Therefore, they required in Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, the trial of all crimes shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes have been committed. Some sticklers then noted that the framers had provided for local trials and jury trials, but not local juries, spurring the Sixth Amendment's requirement that the jury must be of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law. The Sixth Amendment thus left it to Congress to draw up the districts and decide the scope and bounds of the vicinage right. In the Contemporaneous Judicial Act of 1789, Congress provided 13 state-sized districts for the 11 states then extant. In the years that followed, the Sixth Amendment's vicinage right largely faded from view. People worried more about the Sixth Amendment's impartiality requirement. Jury trials became scarce as guilty pleas came into vogue, and the cross-section requirement emerged as the main repository, albeit a confusing one, of proper community representation. But the vicinage requirement is still there, it is unambiguous, and it waits like a rusty nail to infect the unwary. Item two, a statutory bare foot. The zone of death that motivated this essay sits at the perimeter of Yellowstone Park. The problem with Yellowstone is that it does not quite fit in Wyoming, 9% of the park overflows into Montana, about 260 square miles worth, and Idaho, about 50 square miles worth. The park was established in 1872, well before the three states were added to the Union in 1889 and 1890. When the states were admitted, each seceded exclusive jurisdiction of its portion of Yellowstone to the federal government. Yellowstone is a federal enclave. In other words, and the states cannot enforce state law there. When Congress gave up the United States District Court for the District of Wyoming, it must have seemed too much trouble to divide Yellowstone between Wyoming and two other districts, especially when crime was rampant in the park and going unpunished. Therefore, in a constitutionally fateful decision, Congress put the entire park in the District of Wyoming. The districts of Montana and Idaho were defined to exclude the parts of those states that were in Yellowstone. This makes the District of Wyoming the only district court that includes land in multiple states. From an administrative standpoint, this may be uncommonly sensible law, but the issue is not whether the law is wise Rather, it is whether it is compatible with the United States Constitution, and it is. Say that you're in the Idaho portion of Yellowstone and you decide to spice up your vacation by going on a crime spree. You make some moonshine, you poach some wildlife, you strangle some people, and steal their picnic baskets. You are arrested, arraigned in the park and bound over for trial in Cheyenne, Wyoming, before a jury drawn from the Cheyenne area. But Article 3, Section 2, plainly requires that the trial be held in Idaho, the state in which the crime was committed. Perhaps, if you fuss convincingly enough about it, the case would be sent to Idaho. But the Sixth Amendment then requires that the jury be from the state, Idaho, and the district, Wyoming, in which the crime was committed. In other words, the jury would have to be drawn from the Idaho portion of Yellowstone National Park, 
which, according to the 2000 census, has a population of precisely zero. The Montana portion, should you choose to rampage there, has an adult population of a few dozen, which might nevertheless present Sixth Amendment problems as well. The Constitution entitles you to a jury trial and an impartial jury of inhabitants of the state and district where the crime was committed. The U.S. Code steps on the rusty nail. It makes it impossible to satisfy both provisions in the case of the Yellowstone State Line Strangler, assuming that you do not feel like consenting to a trial in Cheyenne, you should go free. Three, interpretive tetanus shots that will not take. Can this really be? Is there a swath of Idaho where you can violate the laws with impunity? This part will go through two obvious constitutional arguments for allowing prosecution and will reject both some more practical solutions, and some naughtier constitutional questions are left for Part 4. A. They could say it's not part of a state, but it is. In 1888, a group of murderers killed four people in what is now the Oklahoma Panhandle. But what was then, owing to sloppy legislating, a no-man's land that was part of no state and assigned to no federal district court, the killers apparently thought that this would make it impossible to prosecute them. But they were wrong. After the massacre, Congress assigned the no-man's land to the Eastern District of Texas retroactively. The killers protested that this violated Article Three and the Sixth Amendment. In Cook v. United States, the Supreme Court rejected the killer's arguments, but it did so in a way that tees up our present crime spree opportunity. The Cook Court reasoned that Article 3 sets federal venue in the state of the crime, and the Sixth Amendment refines that provision by requiring that the jurors be from the right district in the state, defined as ex ante. But if a crime is not in any state, then the remainder of Article 3, Section 2 applies. The trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may by law have directed. In such cases, the court reasoned, the Sixth Amendment's refinements do not apply because the amendment refers explicitly to a state. Though this points to poor draftsmanship in the Sixth Amendment, it makes sense that the Sixth Amendment's state and district vicinage provision would be inapplicable outside of a state and that Congress would have unfettered destruction in such cases. So, once you have been apprehended for your Yellowstone-Idaho crime spree, the prosecution might claim that your crime was committed in a federal enclave, not really in any state. Under this argument, the Sixth Amendment would be rendered inapplicable just as it was in Cook, and Congress' assignment to the case to Wyoming would be constitutionally kosher. But this is specious. The Idaho section of Yellowstone is really part of Idaho. If you decided to live there instead of just going there to kill people, you would vote as an Idahoan and be represented in Congress as an Idahoan, and so on. Similarly, the few people who live in the Montana portion of the park are Montanans. When Idaho and Montana gave the federal government exclusive jurisdiction over their portions of Yellowstone, they did not cause that land to become some federal territories that is not part of any state. The Constitution provides for three sorts of places where the federal government can have exclusive jurisdiction a small federal district that is the seat of government, Washington, D.C., places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the state in which the same shall be, and territory and other property belonging to the United States. If Yellowstone is anything, it is either the second or the third, but in neither case does the federal government's power vis-a-vis the state changed the fact that the lands are still part of one state or another. Indeed, there is no question that Yellowstone is subject to exclusive 
federal jurisdiction. The issue is the Sixth Amendment, which, after all, applies with full force to federal cases occurring in states. The federal government knows that these lands are parts of their respective states and has acknowledged the same in other ways. The statute that establishes the District of Wyoming defines it as comprising Wyoming and those portions of Yellowstone National Park situated in Montana and Idaho. The District of Idaho includes Idaho exclusive of Yellowstone National Park, a construction that is necessary only if the Yellowstone part of Idaho is indeed part of Idaho. The statute established in the District of Montana used similar language. Finally, when state law issues arise in the park, the federal authorities figure out which state's portion of the park is at issue and apply that state's law, including Idaho law, in the Idaho portion. In sum, when Congress sets up this park and admitted these three states, it made a mistake. Congress can be forgiven on the park side because Yellowstone was the world's first national park and there was no precedent. But Congress should have known how to set up the states, having done it 40 times before. It should either have shrunk the park or made Wyoming bigger to include all of the park. All other things being equal, it is nice that Wyoming looks like a rectangle or trapezoid, more precisely, but all other things are not equal. Regular shapes are less important than full protection under law. Failing all that, Congress should have bucked up and divided the park into three districts without making a district court that could include a depopulated enclave in another state and a sparsely populated one in a third. B. They could just change the district after the fact, except they can't. Perhaps Congress would redefine the boundaries of the District of Wyoming after you go on your spree and transfer the scene of the crime to the District of Idaho, calling it Prevent the Yellowstone State Line Strangler from Going Free Act, or for short, <laughs> in, the night, in the 1888 massacre in the Oklahoma Panhandle, after all, the Supreme Court allowed Congress to set up a federal district after the fact, holding that it was not an ex post facto law and did not violate the Sixth Amendment's requirement that the jurors be drawn from a previously ascertained district. But Congress was able to ignore the Sixth Amendment in that case only because the crime was committed outside of any state. No such luck in Yellowstone. Our crime fighters would keep trying just because the previous ascertainment clause applies does not mean that it is necessarily violated by in the United States versus Lausma. The 11th Circuit considered a crime committed in Florida in a county that was transferred before trial from the Southern District to the new Middle District. The court rejected the defendant's argument that trying him in a new district deprived him of his previous ascertainment right. If he had been tried in the new Southern District from which the county of the crime had been excised, he would not have had a jury from the scene of the crime enforcing the previous ascertainment requirement would defeat the purpose of the vicinage requirement. This missed the point. The defendant deserved a Sixth Amendment trial in the old Southern District, which included the scene of the crime, not the new one. Back to our case. One point that the Lausma court did not miss was that having the trial in a newly created district might be unconstitutional if the shift was intended to change the outcome of a pre-existing case. Another circuit has agreed. That is exactly what Pfefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefefef
if the clause means anything, it means that would be unconstitutional. And by the way, that is the Prevent the Yellowstone State Line Strangler from Going Free Act. Okay, so sorry about that. All right, here we keep going. Four, don't go killing anyone just yet. Some more promising cures. It is unclear, indeed perplexing, why no one has challenged the District of Wyoming's borders before. This does not mean the district is constitutional, though. More likely, it reflects the fact that people and courts just do not think much about the vicinage clause. It might also reflect the fact that there are numerous constitutional ways, discussed below, for the government to punish our hypothetical Yellowstone state line strangler. Even if none of these methods is available, moreover, some people in the Department of Justice and the Article III Judiciary might use legal arguments also discussed below that render our perfect crime imperfect. Not every rusty nail causes tetanus. A. They could charge you with other crimes that are not a problem. The constitutional problems in this essay arise only if you commit a crime solely in the Idaho, or maybe Montana, portion of the District of Wyoming. In many cases, though, it would be hard to limit your criminality to that small space. Perhaps you decide, after reading this essay, to go out to Idaho for your crime speed. Before you go, you enlist some friends to help buy your supplies and make your way to Yellowstone. In other words, you commit conspiracy and you do it in the states and districts where there are no Sixth Amendment vicinage problems. You might also have committed a state or federal firearm violation along the way. The possibilities are nearly endless. There's maybe your murderous picnic basket stealing frenzy, but even if they cannot constitutionally prosecute for you for that, they can probably prosecute you for something. Another possibility is for prosecutors to concentrate on lesser offenses those with maximum sentences of six months or less that do not require a jury trial. Again, these misdemeanors may be lesser charges than the ones to which you would be subject in other districts, but they are better than nothing. They will dissuade some criminals, and most important, they can be prosecuted constitutionally. A third possibility is civil liability. Even if the government could not prosecute you, your victims and their families could sue you in tort. Of course, if they get wind of your constitutional argument before you leave the scene of crime, they could just give you a dose of your own medicine, administering vigilante justice with similar impunity. But if a criminal is very careful, he could commit crimes without conspiring or smuggling anything illegal outside the Idaho parkland. He could commit crimes for which there are no lesser included petty crimes or for which the only possible petty punishments are worth the risk. He could concentrate on victimless crimes for which there is no potential for civil liability or self-help remedies. Nevertheless, these alternative possibilities do mitigate our Yellowstone loophole. B. They could have jurors move into the area. The problem with prosecuting crimes in the Idaho portion of Yellowstone is not that it is inherently unconstitutional to have a federal district that crosses the state lines. Rather, the problem is that it is impossible to form a jury solely from the residents of the Idaho parkland because no such people exist. This problem could be solved by redrawing the district lines, but could also be solved by adding people to the jury pool. The latter solution would also mitigate the more limited problems in the Montana portion of Yellowstone. Montana's 260-odd square miles of Yellowstone have 41 adult residents. It would be cutting things rather close, but this might be enough to yield a jury of 12 after a good round of voir dire, with a few strikes for cause and a few more preemptories. This assumes, of course, that the prospective jurors are not disqualified by virtue of being witnesses or federal employees or some such. Of course, 
If you have a few associates who don't mind committing unrelated crimes to help you out, some of you might go free. Those who draw the short straws would be tried first, but by the time the 41 Yellowstone Montanans finished with those trials, the others might be well beyond the requirement of the Speedy Trial Act. In encouraging new residents to move to the vicinage, the federal government would need to be careful to avoid partiality and other problems. To attract enough people to make trials work, the government might have to offer to cover the administrative and moving expenses of the new residents. Impartiality might be a problem if the government were paying people to be on a jury, but it needs not be. So long as it is clear that the selection process and the payment process are in no way dependent upon the verdict that the jury renders. Then again, this is a far cry from ordinary juror pay and sequestration compensation. Moreover, courts are wary of people who strain to get on a, to a jury, and that wariness would be particularly warranted in this extreme a case. Mostly, though, it is just hard to imagine large groups of people moving to the Idaho parkland for this or any other purpose. Overall, this solution would be more complicated, more disruptive, and more fraught with potential unconstitutionality than simply redrawing the district boundaries. Cumbrously moving jurors would only be preferable to redrawing the district's boundaries if the move could be done after the crime, but impartiality problems make that very difficult. There is a further statutory barrier to retrospective juror migration. Federal law requires that jurors have lived within the district for at least one year. This is not fatal, of course, but if the government is seeking retrospective or prompt prospective application, it should limit the possible migrants to those already living in the district, Montanans from inside the park and Wyomingites. Focusing further on just those Wyomingites who already live inside the park would help. Though there might be partiality and administrative concerns associated with relocating large numbers of park employees to be on juries, these would be the people for whom moving would be the simplest. They would not have to move very far, nor would they be leaving the federal enclave that they already call home. To the extent that there is a community that the jury should ideally represent, residents of the park would seem to be its best representatives. In sum, moving people to the Idaho parkland would close the loophole, and it might even do so retrospectively, but it would face large practical and legal problems. Willing and impartial volunteers would be needed immediately, and the nature of the act a group of mainly federal employees moving to a new state in order to be a juror in a specific case means that their willingness and their impartiality might be mutually exclusive. The better solution is just to change the statute, even if that means letting a strangler or two go free. C. They could use those creative interpretive skills they learned in their constitutional law classes. There is a final possibility that the Sixth Amendment, properly interpreted, allows prosecutions for Yellowstone, Idaho crime sprees. The interpretations in Part 3 were rejected because they were not plausible. The interpretations presented in this section are. The argument goes as follows. The Yellowstone loophole only exists if one takes a hyper-literalistic view of the Sixth Amendment. The purpose of the Sixth Amendment's vicinage requirement is to prevent federal prosecutors from shopping for an anti-defendant venue and drawing the jury from there. An overlapping purpose is to guarantee that communities govern themselves in the criminal justice process through jury participation, deciding for themselves what is and what is not a crime in their own backyards as opposed to someone else's. Some additional benefits, if not purposes, of the vicinage requirement 
are that it guarantees that a trial will take place close to where the facts occurred, minimizing inconvenience and helping to ensure that the finder of facts will be a representative body with superior knowledge of local customs and norms. If we take this view of the Sixth Amendment, then placing an unpopulated part of Idaho in the District of Wyoming is not a problem. First of all, the district is pre-existing, fulfilling the other part of the vicinage requirement. So it is not as if trying the case in Cheyenne would be a calculated, manipulative, extemporized act by the prosecution that blindsides the defendant. As for letting the community govern itself, there is no community in the Idaho parkland, so no public interest in self-government would be infringed. If we have to link the Idaho parkland to a community, it makes good sense given the discretion of the Sixth Amendment gives Congress to link the community of the rest of the federal enclave rather than to the rest of Idaho. Administrative convenience and the local knowledge are not countervailing factors either, as it is more convenient to govern the park as one unit, and the people with the best knowledge of the norms of the park would be other residents of the park, not other Idahoans. This interpretation of the Sixth Amendment might receive some votes in court, maybe even enough votes to carry the day, but it misses the point. If Congress is to ignore the strict text of a straightforward constitutional provision, whatever that provision's purposes, it must have compelling justification. The burden in such a case, in other words, is to justify the statute's departure from the clear terms of the Constitution, but the only reason that Congress can give for putting portions of Idaho in the District of Wyoming is convenience while impossibility or genuine hardship might be enough to justify an unconstitutional statute. Mere inconvenience is not. There are plenty of other units in the national park system that have small spillovers into other state, but none of these areas are shoehorned into a single federal district, and no undue travesties have resulted. In Yellowstone, moreover, Federal prosecutors already take the time to treat crimes differently based on the state in which they are committed. If the Sixth Amendment and Article Three, Section 2 draw any bright lines at all, they are state lines. State lines are not mere technicalities in our federalist system, after all. In standing up for the principle of trial in the locale of the crime by the residents of that locale, the Constitution specifically defines the notion of a locale along state lines. While the Sixth Amendment does give Congress the power to refine those bounds further, along district lines it would be odd if that refinement allowed Congress to run roughshod over state borders in the manner that it has here. Another way to close the loophole would be to say that the Sixth Amendment requires an impartial jury of the vicinage, but that impartiality trumps vicinage. While this is true as a practical matter, it does not solve our problem here. Courts have allowed impartiality to trump venue and vicinage primarily because the view these rights of the defendant. If a defendant would rather have an impartial jury than a local one, we let him make that choice and waive the latter right. Our problem, however, assumes that the defendant does not waive his right to a local trial or a local jury. The troublesome interaction between impartiality and vicinage is not an accident. Moreover, and it further eliminates why our Yellowstone statute is unconstitutional. The two rights are mentioned in the same constitutional breath, and impartiality was a critical topic in the debate over vicinage during the drafting of the Sixth Amendment. In his original draft of the amendment, James Madison provided for county-level vicinage, with exceptions only when rebellion in a county might interfere with impaneling an impartial jury. On the other extreme, some participants in the ratification debates opposed requiring juries of the vicinage altogether because it was rooted in an outdated notion of jurors bringing local knowledge into their jobs instead of the participants' preferred notion of juries as blank slates. When the final version of the Sixth Amendment emerged, 
It answered both Madison and his critics' concern by giving Congress the power to divine the extent of the vicinage right. Madison's concern was addressed because Congress could, and did, draw district lines so wide that any small localized rebellion would not threaten impartiality. At the same time, Congress could always decide to make districts smaller in area as the population grew. The critics of vicinage were placated by the initial large districts and by the requirement of impartiality, which, combined in the jury selection process, guaranteed that a subset of disinterested jurors would be drawn from the broader population of a large area. Here's the point. Granting to Congress the power to define districts and vicinage solved these problems, but it presented another one. Congress might not do a good job of drawing the district lines, and that is precisely the issue here. The Yellowstone loophole is not a result of some inherent flaw in the concept of vicinage that should lead courts to eviscerate the right. Rather, the cause is that Congress was sloppy when it created the District of Wyoming. The goals of the Sixth Amendment are not advanced by trying an Idahoan killer in Wyoming by Wyomingites. Only the goal of punishing a killer is. But both goals could be advanced easily and simply by trying our killer in Idaho by Idahoans. Congress deserves no deference for its decision not to use the Sixth Amendment powers in this more sensible way. If our case ever arises... The court should have no hesitation in declaring the District of Wyoming statute unconstitutional. Conclusion. Finally. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> Our Yellowstone loophole highlights some interesting things about the Constitution. First, nobody really pays much attention to the vicinage. If anybody did, this gap would have been closed already, either by a court or by Congress. Second, just because a statute has been around and in regular use for over a century does not mean that it is constitutional. It bears emphasis that the flaw here is really with the District of Wyoming statute, not with the Sixth Amendment. The solution is to fix the statute, not eviscerate the Constitution. If we do it quickly enough, no one will get hurt. If courts are convinced by the Sixth Amendment, counterarguments offered in Part 4 then perhaps no one will get hurt anyway, or at least not with impunity. One should not, however, overestimate the willingness of our courts to accept an argument and redefine the Constitution solely to avoiding letting one criminal go free. Indeed, courts let people get away with heinous crimes all the time under, say, the exclusionary rule, and that get-out-of-jail-free card is not even in the Constitution. To take a slightly different and more directly analogous example, the government should not be able to avoid the court's warrant requirement simply by refusing to provide for the appointment of any neutral magistrates. There is no reason to reward Congress's playing fast and loose with the Sixth Amendment. The best solution to the Yellowstone loophole is to close it, not to pretend it is not there. And that's it. That is the entire paper, which is actually a short law document compared to the other ones, as I was told by Brian. But uh, that is it. So hopefully you guys made it all the way to the end of it. I'm sure there's attorneys listening to this podcast driving down the road, getting to Yellowstone Park that are just on the edge of their seats. And everybody else has long ago started listening to some rap music. But uh, anyway, that's it. That is the perfect crime. So, And it's just like he finishes up. I mean, there's no reason for this to stay open. Somebody, some idiot out there, and there's plenty of them, and just real recently in the Yellowstone Park area and others, you know, like Brian Laundrie killed Gabby Petito, and then that Lori Daybell Vallow, whatever you want to call her, Chad those, took those kids up there, was their, one of their last pictures together, was up there by Grand Prismatic. And, yeah, they were in Yellowstone Park. It was their last family trip. Had they known about this zone of death or this loophole, because you can drive a car right to it and be there in four minutes walking from your car and do whatever, you know. You've got to plan it all and do it all and execute it all in that area. But 
it's it's a loophole that exists and it needs to be closed. So I don't know if anybody made it to the end of this podcast. <laughs> the other ones are kind of interesting. That's probably the great, the most boring, long, drawn-out podcast I've ever done. But uh, anyway, so that's it. That's the perfect crime and the zone of death in Yellowstone Park. So, all right. It'll sure make you think. And remember, we posted a short five or six minute video on YouTube that basically lets Brian talk to you guys. You can see him talking on there and we put some cool pictures on there that are kind of funny for you guys. And So be sure and watch that video. When you go to YouTube, he's sitting there and he's bald headed. Sorry, Brian, again. And it's easy to see. He's standing there looking at you. And so just click on that and you'll be able to see me talking to him and his responses and all that stuff. So, okay. Everybody have a great time in Yellowstone Park and be sure and pick up a guidebook from our website and get an electronic or a paperback copy and uh, it'll really help you out man our guidebook's the top rated guidebook for yellowstone park and uh, it helps a lot of people out just go to our review section and check it all out so everybody have a great time talk to you later bye-bye